Good morning. Good morning. If you're visiting, my name is Peter. I'm on the team of elders that leads the church, and I'm tasked by them to serve as the lead pastor, which means I direct our staff and I preach the word. So we're going to get into it. We're moving forward. It's week three of our Story of the Bible series that we're doing alongside Mosaic Church in Austin. I think it's really common for many of us to know a handful of stories from the Bible without being really captured by the story of the Bible. So we're going through this series. Now, last week, Alberto bravely brought us in to the garden, the garden of delight. Here, I'm going to fix this real quick. All right, fixed. In Jesus' name. Okay, we're good. Alberto talked about the Garden of Delight, where God designed us to find our chief pleasure, which is having our pleasure in God himself. Our chief pleasure of having relationship with God himself. Now, as we move from chapter 2 in Genesis to chapter 3 in Genesis, we see pleasure fall to perversion. In other words, we go from the topic and whiplash from the topic of creation to the topic of catastrophe. Catastrophe is our topic. God made us for pleasure, but for pleasure in him. Trying to find pleasure elsewhere is catastrophic. It's like trying to find your food source at an oil refinery. You just weren't made to get your food there. We were made by God, and we were made for God. We were made to bring him pleasure and to receive our pleasure in him alone. I'm going to ask you to stand to your feet to honor God's word. We're in Genesis 3, verses 1 through 8. Now the serpent was more crafty than the other beast of the field. That the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say that you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the tree of the fruit that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened. And they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord Lord God among the trees in the garden. The word of the Lord. Y'all can be seated as we pray. Jesus, please add a blessing to the reading of your word. Help us to be brave, to see your greatest beauty 
revealed in the pit of our worst ugly. You said that where sin abounds, grace abounds even more. God, we are way more sinful and way more evil than we could ever imagine, but we're way more loved than we could ever grasp. So I ask that you would give us new eyes to see why you made us and to see how you love us and to see what that all has to do with the cross and the resurrection. Amen. Amen. Today I want to spend half of my time slowly walking back through our passage and pointing out some context about human sin and building a few points out of that that gives us ability to understand what this is saying. Actually moving beyond our own familiarity with the text and the story. Then I want to spend the second half of my time unpacking two overlooked factors, commonly overlooked factors in human sin. Now, we're going to be covering a lot of adult content today, and that's not just a fair warning if there's children in here, but it's an eager request and an appeal to the rest of us to please be brave adults that can earnestly look at the implications and the foundations of not just those people's sin, but my sin, that would dare to take God's word personally and see what God can do with our hearts when we read scripture and we let scripture read us. That's what I'm asking of us. Even the staunchest atheist believes in sin in that he or she will hold to what I call objective moral boundaries. Now in our culture that goes back and forth and whiplashes everywhere, the objectivity of objective moral boundaries is a moving object for sure. What's woke today is broke tomorrow. And we go from one thing to the next, and we progress and we digress. And no one, though, is functionally amoral at any time. Everyone has moral standards that they operate under. The same person that's incensed by the judgment of one community turns around and becomes the judge and jury to another community at the same time. The zealots of devotion to the tribe of tolerance can become so intolerant of another community of people that they deem arbitrarily, for whatever reason, worthy of intolerance. We can be on the right side of history, is a quote we hear in our culture a lot today. We can be on the right side of history and culture today and yet be utterly villainized for the same things tomorrow. History and culture changes and digresses, leaves us totally confused and disoriented if our standard for morality is our culture. But as we look back at Genesis 3, we can see various points of commonality and refreshing, if not painful, clarity that it's not that some of us are right and some of us are wrong. It's that we are all wrong. There's no good guy in the humans in this story. We're all wrong. We've all fallen from God's grace. And God, unlike the flip-flopping nature of our culture, is unchanging. He's immutable. 
So take heart, because as you're going to see here, there's nothing confusing about God and his word. There's nothing confusing about what happens here. It's just a direct gut punch of pain that we've always been on the wrong side of history in God's eyes. And if you need more material for your inspirational poster, we've always been wrong. Number two, uh, it's way worse than we think. And three, there's nothing we can do to fix it. So there you go. But let's have a closer look at why. Because if we don't see what went wrong and how things went wrong with us, we're not going to be able to see with true faith how Jesus can make it right. In other words, if we don't rightly and faithfully and bravely take a look at the, the true diagnosis, not just an almost diagnosis of our sin condition, then we're not going to be able to truly receive the cure that only God could pay for. So, here we go. Verse 1, remember we're going to slowly walk back through this, and then I'm going to point at the second half uh, two overlooked factors. So let's go to verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty, astute, than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? We're going to pause right there. First overlooked factor of sin that we're going to really unpack at the end of this message is questioning. Questioning. We're going to come back to that, but I want to stay with that for a second to build context. Everyone say questioning. The enemy here isn't asking a question to learn. He's questioning in order to lure. And I think we can all look back and, and see where we've participated in the wrong kind of questioning in our own lives. Whether it's in person with people, uh, conversations that go wrong in person with people or on social media. And we can often kind of evaluate the situation and think like, man, what did I do wrong? What could I do better to improve upon the outcome of that conversation? And often the answer is nothing. That we shouldn't have even been in the conversation in the first place, we shouldn't have entertained the line of questioning. Eve was supposed to be out of this conversation before she was in the conversation. She wasn't even supposed to be there. This was supposed to be history's first by Felicia moment. But she just carried on in the conversation and entertained the foolish questioning of the enemy. Verse 2, the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. Let's stop there. She uses this word may, like we may eat of the fruit of the trees. We're allowed to eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, which is technically correct. But if you go back to chapter two, God says multiple times, you are free to eat of any tree in the garden, except, to the, except for the alternative to freedom, which is slavery, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which we'll get back to. You're free. Let's be careful to not call prohibition what God calls protection. Do I prohibit my children from eating only Oreos for dinner every night? Or do I protect them from what I know that they don't need that might seem desirable to them, but I know will be harmful to them. 
That, that's what God's doing here. We, we need to not call prohibition what's really protection. Does God prohibit sex outside of marriage? Well, yes, he does. But it's more of a protection. It's more of him preserving him, us from what we think might be desirable, but is only harmful. Why? Because he wants the best of delight that he designed us for and that he's redeeming us unto. It's protection. Did God here prohibit Adam and Eve from the tree in the midst of the garden or was he protecting their innocence with a huge warning saying, you don't have to be intimately acquainted with sin and evil and futility and perversion and torture and brutality. You don't have to go there. You don't have to know things that you can't unknow later. He's protecting them. Don't miss out on God's goodness through what we might call restrictions or prohibitions when they're protections. You are free. You are free to live the life that God's designed for you. The exhilaration and adventure that he's designed for you. Just don't enslave yourself to alternatives that promise so much and deliver on nothing. Verse 3 But God said, she goes on, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that's in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it lest you die. So here's the problem. The enemy says, you're not supposed to eat of any of the trees in the garden, right? You see how he's he's skewing the lines of what God clearly said. No, no, no. You're free to eat of any tree in the garden. But the alternative to freedom is slavery. You can go and... Take that alternative, the other tree. But see, the enemy skews the line and says, does God even say that you're not allowed to eat of anything? Kind of skews the line through the questioning. And in, in, in her correction, you would think that she goes back to what God said, but she adds, neither shall you touch it. If you go back to the chapter before, you're not going to find that written because God never said that. She was being spiritually extra. Beware of religious additions. Religious additions. See, I think dead fundamentalism was a thing from the very beginning. Because here you have Eve adding extra rules, thinking that she's going to make herself more godly with extra rules. And when it doesn't work, what do we keep doing? We keep adding extra rules. And it doesn't make us more godly. It doesn't produce faith. I think of the 11th century when the Pope Gregory with the uh, onset of sexual deviance in the Roman Empire from all the going back and forth, some of the priests had a legitimate gift of celibacy, singleness. But in fear, which is always what happens with rules, it's always fear-based, almost never faith-based, Pope Gregory made a mandatory clerical celibacy. If if there's sexual deviance out there, how about we don't even risk abusing it and let's prohibit everything? Well, we're seeing recently how that rule is backfiring in the Catholic Church. But it's not just them. It's all of us. Here's a more modern example of religious additions. Ephesians 5 says, Do not be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. See, if that were two concentric circles, drunkenness and filledness, these circles don't overlap. You can be drunken, 
or you can be filled with the Holy Spirit. Drunken is an abuse of the gift of alcohol. And if you abuse, you will not be filled with the Holy Spirit. Now, that is something we need to take in faith and fair warning. But if we add to it, like Pope Gregory did in regards to the abuse of the gift of sex, and we think that the rule that we add, the religious addition, is going to make us more holy, we need to be careful. Some will say, you're not even supposed to touch alcohol at all. Now, side note, if you're an alcoholic or have deemed that being a child of an alcoholic or whatever, you need to not touch it, that, that's not an extra rule. But for the rest of us, I have to wonder, does adding something on one side of the equation lead to more holiness, more filledness with the Holy Spirit on the other side of the equation? Anecdotally, I've never seen that to be true. I've never seen someone who says, I never touch alcohol, and because of that, I can't help but prophesy all the time and build people up and lay my hands on people and, and see them get well all the time. Now, if that happens, and there is just amazing disciple makers that don't, don't drink at all and don't touch it, then go on doing that. Just don't make a rule for it for everyone else. Let's beware of religious additions. In my experience, making extra religious rules outside of what the word of God says is not the alternative to disobeying the word of God. It's often the alternative to faith. It's easier to trust in a rule than it is to trust in God. But let's trust in God and not be creative like Eve here. So she kind of skews the lines with the enemy and he knows he has her lured in and he proceeds. Verse four, the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. You see what he's doing here? He's, he's saying you will be like God, but we know from two chapters before, they were already in essence like God in that they were made in the image of God. So often the enemy tempts us to lust after things that we already have. Cheaper versions of things that we already have but aren't properly acknowledging. Example, you, you feel lonely. But instead of embracing the people, the companionship with the people that God has given to you, you go out and look for cheap affirmation from other people. In essence, questioning God and what he's doing for you implicitly and finding someone that maybe doesn't love you, they just want to take something from you, more like a transaction. But God has given you his love. He's given, his, given you his people to love you. The enemy tempts us to lust after cheaper versions of what we already have. They already had God. They were already made in his image. Verse 6, so when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to her eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of it and ate. Now, I'm just going to go ahead and add my opinion on this, that whatever she was seeing in that fruit, whether it was a fig or an apple or whatever it was, she was seeing things that weren't there. I mean, to make one wise, I'm pretty sure that no fruit that God made implicitly makes one wise. She was seeing things that weren't there. 
And this is what sin does. This is the classic overpromise of sin. I say often, sin is like popcorn. And don't judge me if this is you too, because this is a lot of us. You go into a, a, a movie theater and you, you get that smell, that wafting smell, right? And I, and I smell the popcorn and I'm thinking, ooh, that smells good. But then I add to that, I, I create something that's not quite there in my flesh. And I think something like, man, this is going to make me wise. <laughs> or at least... This is going to satisfy that deep desire in me. So what do I do? I buy that bucket and I put a whole ton of butter in that bad boy and I sit down at the movie and I start eating it and it tastes good. And this is what we need to understand about sin. Is sin fun for a time? Is it, does it taste good in essence? Yeah. Okay. But I keep eating. And at the point at which I realize this isn't delivering on the promise to the level that I was thinking, I could stop and say, Man, this was a bad decision. I, I need to stop right here. Mm-mm. But I carry on. I keep eating. And all of a sudden, the whole bucket's gone. And I'm left with this salty, buttery film at the top of my mouth that I can't get rid of. And a bubble gut that just won't quit. And I'm not happy. And I'm not satisfied. And that is so much like sin. It promises what it can't deliver. To make one wise, they already had the wisdom of God. Romans 1 says that they traded, thinking themselves wise, they traded the knowledge of God for images of the created. The forbidden fruit isn't literally just a fruit. It's easy to kind of mythologize the Bible as if it were kind of something disconnected from our actual existence. But it's harder to see And apply it accurately that this is the moment where the seed moment where we all rejected God's provision and his protection and sought to find pleasure and protection in lesser things. This is the fruit of pride and fear that we eat of. And so she took and ate, verse 6, and gave some to her husband who was with her. And he ate. I didn't see this for years. Adam was with her the whole time. He wasn't saying anything. He wasn't doing anything. He wasn't leading like he was supposed to lead. He wasn't speaking up on behalf of his wife or his family. He just let his wife carry on while she was being sequestered by the enemy right in front of his passive face. The silence of Adam. The silence of our fathers has arguably done more harm in human history than the harsh words of sinful men. So Adam and Eve ate, firmly rejecting God's love for a cheap and deceptive alternative, which we do every day. And the world has never been the same since. Verse 7, the eyes of both were opened. They knew they were naked. See, prior to this, They were naked, but technically not naked because they were covered by the purity and grace of God. And when they stepped outside of God and rejected his grace, they were covered by their own impurity. So reading on from verse 7, they covered up. They sewed fig leaves together to make themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden, verse 8, in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees in the garden. That's the end of our passage. 
The second overlooked factor, commonly overlooked factor in sin that we see here is covering. Covering. Questioning and covering. Now with our remaining time, I want to dive deeper into these two things. These two factors play out in the endless sin and death cycle. So often we can focus on the sinful action itself and miss how these two play a part in it. As you'll see in this chapter, it started with questioning and it led to the action and it led to covering. I want to say it starts with questioning and it ends with covering because that sounds better. The only problem is that's not true. It's not a accurate reading of scripture because it doesn't end anywhere. It starts with questioning and it leads to covering and it leads to more questioning and to more covering. And before you know it, we're in a dark and cold environment of mistrust, self-protection, self-isolation, anxiety, insecurity, mistrust, shame, which leads to shameful actions and more covering. So let's have a closer look at questioning. Can we be brave and move on together? Sometimes in my insecurity, I need a yes, yes, amen. So thank you for that. Questioning. Did God actually say? So the enemy is questioning. Last week I was on campus doing our God test outreach. And a kid... 18, 19, um, was pretty aggressively wanting to teach me things um, like I did when I was 18. And he said, how am I supposed to trust in a God that I cannot see? And he said it with that gotcha tone. And uh, the thing is, there's a good answer to that question, but I didn't give it because it wasn't a question. He wasn't asking me a question for which he desired a response He was questioning. So often we make statements that sound like questions, and if only they were true questions, we could receive true answers. The serpent was questioning nothing else but the the very character and nature and intention of God. Let me ask you, how does it feel when someone questions you? When someone questions and brings doubt upon your intentions, your character, and leaves No room for a response. And notice that the questioning of God came before the lusting after the fruit. Can can we think about this for a second? That she, her eyes were meant to behold the glory and beauty and provision and protection of God and be complete. That's what we're all made for. The moment we can start to cast a little doubt on our faith in who God is, That's the same moment where other things start to appear as bigger than they really are. The questioning came before the lusting. I think this is why in the Ten Commandments, the first commandment comes before the second, third, and on to the tenth. You should have no other gods before me. And then it's all the thou shalt nots later. Because if our eyes are on God and who he is, then we'll be rightly secured to reject the alternatives. She lusted after taking her eyes off of God in a form of questioning. It's way too easy to catalog 
catalog all the bad things that we can do in humanity, the evil behaviors that we tend to engage in, but it's way harder to trace it back to what kind of questioning about God that we were participating in that left ourselves isolated for that other behavior. It's, it's way more accurate to say, what was I actively mistrusting about God when I started to believe these other things and do these other things? That's what we see people bravely ask strategically in Victory Weekend and why I think it's so surprisingly fruitful and redemptive when we can ask, what is it about God that I was not believing and having faith in when I stepped into this lie? Ultimately, sin isn't just shown in wrong actions or answers, but in our wrong line of questioning. Did God really say that my body is precious and sacred and should be treated with honor and dignity? Or am I just essentially... Uh, a more advanced animal? Did God really say that I must forgive others if I am to walk in his forgiveness? Or am I off the hook if the other people that I'm supposed to forgive don't seem to me to be acting in a way that's worthy of my forgiveness? Did God really say that I shouldn't fool around before I get married? This was the line of questioning that would have revealed my unconverted state as a teenager back when I was a religious kid who thought I knew God and really didn't. You know, I would, I would kind of question God's design in the universe and say, oh, that's just old fashioned. Or, you know, is there anything wrong with having a little fun? And in my fallen state, I would look at girls and I would automatically ask the question, what can I get from her? When Jesus made me new, the Holy Spirit helped me to ask the question, how should I honor her? And let's be careful. I want to be clear that this question did not come from me because I didn't, I didn't have the ability to answer that question. It just left me in a place of utter dependency on God. God, I don't know. Help me. That was 21 years ago, and I'm pretty much still in the same place of dependence on God. In my human interactions with other people, I tend to want to get what I want to make me feel uh, better and make more, more convenienced versus God, how should I honor others? Help me. We're made to walk with him. When we question wrongly, it isolates us. Or this question, did God really say that a helpless human being is more valuable than our convenience? worth protecting rather than bullying or killing? Did God really say that we're fearfully and wonderfully made, that he knit us together in our mother's womb, in the womb where we are people to protect, not just fetuses to dispose of? Did God really say that we must not, quote, mistreat foreigners who live in our land? We must not turn them away, turn away our own flesh and blood, Jeremiah 22 says, see, when we question like this, we're bringing implicit accusation against God and how he designed the earth to exist. We're isolating ourselves. We're spurring on evil by our participation and by our neglect. Questioning 
leads to sinful actions, and then leads to covering. This is the other, other overlooked factor in human sin. The moment they lost their innocence, Adam and Eve were filled with shame and immediately covered up. It was a big cover-up. Think about the cover-ups and sex scandals in churches today. The Houston Chronicle dropped a bomb this week. 700 victims of sex abuse in the last 20 years by leaders in the Southern Baptist Convention. And I use this example specifically because it would be easy to say that, oh, this sort of thing happens over there, not with us evangelicals. Now, I'm going to guess that of these 700 victims, almost 100% of these cover-ups involved, involved leaders who would have never admitted that they were doing a cover-up. They would have probably said something like they were treating the situation with delicacy and privacy. And under the cover of that privacy, the perpetrators moved to other churches and found other victims. See, by not bravely exposing the ugly, our ugly, we're aiding and abetting the crime, and sometimes in the name of grace. And I do this personally myself. I'm not on the, off the hook for this. When I'm confronted in a growth group with men with confessing my sin and the ugly parts of my sinfulness, I sure do want to cover it up a little bit and make it sound a little better because I don't want to be uncomfortable or make someone else feel uncomfortable. But the problem is, is that God's grace is right there in the ugly. So why do we talk about sin in church? Because we want to expose it and not cover it up. We, we want to be more loving and graceful and not less. And the thing is, is that we're sons of Adam and we're daughters of Eve and we're, we're prone to covering things up and, and, and not, not just our own transgressions, but not wanting to talk about sin in general because it's too painful. And we'll say things like, I just want to talk about the love of God. But how loving is it to obscure the sin that Jesus alone saves us from? We'll say things like, we should just talk about drawing near to God and near to Christ and, and, and we shouldn't make people feel uncomfortable. Well, people already feel uncomfortable by the world we live in. Are we drawing them near to the Christ who died on the cross? And what did he die on the cross for? For my sin and for your sin. Why do we talk about sin so much? Well, why is Good Friday good? Good Friday was, that's kind of an ironic term, as you know. Jesus died on the cross. It was a lot more gruesome than we tend to think about. It wasn't really good, except that the worst of our evil, when put up over against the blood of Christ, loses. That's why Good Friday is good. Why do we talk about black history in church? There's so much inspirational and encouraging history, but there's some uncomfortable parts of it too that expose our shameful past. We want to avoid talking about things like this. And I hear people sometimes say, well, well let's just stick to the gospel and, and avoid those you know, political things. And what's ironic about this and sad is people that are left-leaning 
tend to deem political that which right-leaning people hold as sacred gospel things, and right-leaning people at the same time tend to deem political that which left-leaning people hold as sacred gospel things. So my conclusion is this, that the only surefire way that we can fully avoid being deemed perceived as political is if we avoid talking about the whole gospel, which is sadly a route that many people have gone in. Come to church, you'll hear an uplifting message that'll improve your life. And we say the name of God, maybe. We'll say things like, Jesus saves, but we'll neglect to proclaim what he saves us from. We'll talk about sin kind of as a, as a symbolic thing, but not any of the uncomfortable implications. And it's a cover-up. We're covering just like Adam and Eve. Allow me to graphically illustrate why we cannot make this error in covering up the ugly ingredients to the gospel story, to the Bible story. Here's a picture of a church a few decades ago. This is the banner that flew over this church, Jesus saves. Now, I can only imagine the line of questioning that must have issued forth from this people. Did God really say that we can't gather together with Christian brothers with common interests? Did God really say, actually, that we can't fight for our way of life and for the gospel as we know it? And I assume that no one in the church adequately stood up to apply the truth of the gospel to the people in leadership in this church because that would have been too uncomfortable. And so they just carried on. Now let's zoom out. This was a clan meeting. Now to us, it was, it's a contradiction. To them, it wasn't. And I warn us, Please hear me. If you cannot be brave to consistently expose your own sin, you'll be no different in the eyes of God as people that are not willing to be rebuked by the word of God. It's not just white people in Mississippi and Alabama that need to talk about sin and what Jesus... Let's let's take that down now. (laughs) Lord, help them. Thank you. That need the uncomfortable parts of the redemptive story. It's all of us. If you think, if you think, yeah, if you think that there's nothing in our way that we see the world that needs to be corrected, that's a dangerous thought. We are a confessional community. You are a congregation. You are not an audience. Why do we do our scripted confession as we go into communion, which we're about to prepare for? Why do we do this every week where we read a confession and we go to communion and we celebrate? It's because habits form deeply, even deeper than thoughts, and Jesus knew that. He knew that if we could force ourselves 
to expose what we're prone to want to cover, then we'll be formed into a people that he can continue to speak into and will correct history's mistakes today. Admittedly, I don't like to feel oppression, and I don't like to feel the moments of history where I am in line in the lineage or the privilege of the oppressor. But the beauty is that the worst of it, Jesus was the oppressed one who died on the cross for the rest. And he died on the cross for the oppressed, but listen, he died on the cross for the oppressors. And we are all, in the eyes of Jesus, oppressors in world history, habituators of sin that need to expose it and say, God, I confess my sin and I need you to forgive me. And that it's a habit. It happens in our growth groups every week. We encourage you to go to growth groups because this is a unique place where I can regularly confess my sin. And I so love how the men in my growth group in particular are so aggressive in no ambiguity when we get real specific with our sin. Jesus withstood the questioning that Eve faced in the garden and he rebuked the devil. And in a different garden on a Thursday night, the week of a Sabbath, Jesus brought his question and pain before God. And he said, God, without any question, he said, God, if there's any other way, but not my will, yours be done. The next day, it was the Friday before the Sabbath. He went wholeheartedly and willingly to suffer in full exposure for what we deserved. He was stripped naked, his back being torn open and exposed completely. And he was hung on a cross to suffocate. He was laid in a tomb. That Sunday morning, he rose from the dead. And now he's seated at the right hand of the father and he says, remember, don't cover it up. Don't gloss over it. Remember what I've done for you. Remember why you need it. Don't look away from the ugly parts. Confess it. Give it to me. Give me your ugly parts. Let me heal you. He says, remember what I've done. Will you stand to your feet with me?